you go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles if you've got one and turn to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible on this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. If you forgot your Bible or didn't bring a Bible, or if you don't own a Bible, then for sure throw your hand up and take one of these home as our gift to you. And turn to Matthew chapter 26, first book in the New Testament, chapter 26. And as you're turning there, have you ever jumped into a movie that, that, that's already playing? You, you've missed the first part of it. Maybe you've missed the first 20 minutes of it and you jump in and, and, and you're totally lost as you're watching this movie. And then you become that annoying person that, that's always asking the questions during the movie. Right? Like, why is he saying that? Why did she run from that guy? Why is he kissing her? Like you're asking all the, because you don't know what's going on in the story. You can't jump into the middle of a story and expect to understand what's going on. And listen, it's the same with the Bible. I mean, we're gonna jump into the middle of a story here in Matthew as Jesus gathers with his disciples. And it's absolutely a, a central, what's going on here, central to the whole story of the Bible. Jesus celebrating what we call the Last Supper now. And it's this meal that actually is an unfolding of God's plan that began at the beginning of time. And so we need to jump back a little bit. We need to go back to the beginning and see, hey, what was going on that led up to this? So, so let's go back. Let, let's go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, we hear that God calls this guy named Abraham. He calls him and says, I'm gonna make out of your family a great nation, a people. And from you will come the hope, the promise of the world. Abraham was old, didn't have any kids, but miraculously, a son was born to him, Isaac. When Isaac grew up to be a, a, a young boy, God then said to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I, I want you to take and sacrifice Isaac, your firstborn son, sacrifice him to me. Now, our, our, our minds hear that. We think that's ridiculous that God would do that. But here's something even more odd. When you read this in Genesis 22, you read that, that Abraham, yeah, he was, he was weighed heavy. He had anguish over the command. But, but Abraham doesn't say like I would say, God, that's crazy. There's no way, God, you would ask me to do that. That's not, that's not how your character goes. There's no way God would ask me to do this. Abraham struggled with the command, but he didn't struggle with God's call of justice. Abraham knew there's this debt of sin that's owed to the holy creator God and there's a, a debt that's over every family and so God could call on that debt whenever he wanted to. I mean, we recognize this, this sin debt even today that, that every sin, every wrongdoing requires a payment. Someone always has to pay. We know this in relationships. When you've been hurt by somebody, someone has to pay. They either pay because you retaliate back. You belittle, you get angry, you, you, you hurt them back. Why? Because they need to pay for what they did or, or you forgive them. But in forgiving them, you now pay for that sin. When you refuse to get angry, when you don't belittle them, when you don't talk ill of them, you're paying for their sin. When someone breaks a law, what happens? There's a debt to be paid. A, a judge is not a good judge. Justice is not served. If the judge says, hey, don't worry about it, you just get to go. 
well, yeah, that person may not pay, but payment still happens. Either the victims of his crime or society pays for justice to be served. A debt needs to be paid. So Abraham doesn't question God's justice. But he does question, can God be a God of justice and a God of grace? Can, can God be a God of holiness and justice and at the same time be a God of grace and a God of promise? And so there comes a crisis point as Abraham and Isaac are walking up this mountaintop and Isaac says to his dad, hey dad, uh, I see we've got fire, we've got wood, we've got a knife, but where's the lamb? Where's the, the lamb that we would normally sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son and he says, Isaac, God will provide a lamb. What Abraham was saying is he's saying, I hope with all hope that, that Isaac, you won't have to die to pay for your sin and my sin. I hope with all hope that even though justice could be served, that somehow God would provide a lamb so my little lamb Isaac would not have to die. And at the last minute, God stops Abraham. He says, Abraham, no, don't do it. <coughs> but when you read the text, here's the part that's missing. A lamb never shows up. Yeah, there's a ram that's caught in the thickets and it's offered up as a thank offering to God, but the debt of sin still is unpaid. There still was no lamb. You fast forward the story, you get to Moses and, and by now Abraham's family has grown into this nation of Israel and yet they were trapped in slavery in Egypt. And again, God shows up with justice. And he says again, I'm going to claim the firstborn son. But, but not just one firstborn son. Now God shows up and says, I'm, I'm taking all the firstborn sons. And he says to Moses, Moses, at midnight, I will pass through Egypt and every firstborn will die. The debt's called on again. And it's interesting because he doesn't just say, hey, the, the firstborn of the Egyptians, the oppressors, man, their firstborns are gonna die. No, he even says, you Israel, the one being oppressed, the one who's being sinned against, my chosen people, God says, even if you were to stand in judgment, you'd fall short of my holiness. So God says the firstborn, but here, here's, he says, your only hope is a lamb. He says, I'm gonna provide a substitute. Theologians call this the substitutionary atonement where, where someone or something stands in our place and he says, take a lamb, kill that lamb, place its blood on your doorpost, roast the lamb, eat the lamb that night. And he says, listen, as I go through, I will pass over the homes with the blood of the lamb. I'll pass over those families who are underneath the blood of the lamb. The lamb was the substitute. It paid a debt so that the firstborn didn't have to. And, and so that in Egypt on that night, in every home, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. And so that Passover night, every, every Passover that's been celebrated down throughout the centuries, they would look as a, as a Jewish person growing up celebrating the Passover meal, you would look at the table and you would see the lamb on the table and you would say, the only reason God passed over and the firstborn that night didn't die was because that lamb died. But for these centuries as they celebrate Passover, there's still a problem 
I mean, that deliverance was for one night. They were delivered from Egypt, but there was, there was a greater deliverance needed. The sin debt still hadn't been paid. We, we need another lamb. We need a deeper deliverance because the debt is unpaid and the debt is immense. So now we come to our passage this morning. As the story continues, look at verse 26. Jesus sits down. He's celebrating Passover with his disciples. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, sorry, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the transgressions of sin. Now, if you were raised in a Jewish culture, this Passover would actually seem kind of weird. It wouldn't make any sense. I mean, you, you would see Jesus standing up to lead the meal. So he, he's doing the right thing. He's taking the place of the, the father. He's what you would call the presider over the meal. And he's now going to explain what Passover is. That's what happens every Passover. Someone explains the meal, but there's so many things here that Jesus changes. But the first thing I want us to see is this. Every Passover would have three key elements. There'd be the bread, and we see Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. There'd be four cups of wine, and Jesus pours the wine, but the third element is that there would be a lamb. But you see here, there's no reference to the lamb. There, there is no lamb. What kind of Passover is it if there isn't a lamb? We don't read of any lamb being on the table. Why? Because the lamb was at the table. Jesus is changing the Passover meal forever. He's saying to his disciples, tonight I am the lamb. Tonight I'm giving you the ultimate salvation that first Passover only pointed to. Yes, God rescued the Israelites from political and physical bondage and by them being under the blood of the lamb. But he says, listen, the debt of sin is still on you. And tonight I'm taking the debt in full. I'm the lamb of lambs, Jesus said. I mean, John the Baptist got it. Remember what he said when he first saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, John understood what God was saying. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna walk up a mountain with my son and I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay him on the wood and my firstborn will die so yours doesn't have to. John understood that it wasn't a fluffy little animal that night in Egypt that, that would have saved them, but it was God giving up his firstborn that saved the firstborns, that, that on the cross, we behold the perfect lamb. It's interesting because when you read through the gospels, we read in John chapter 19 that, that Jesus' bones weren't broken on the cross. Like the other people on the cross have their legs broken so they would die quicker. Jesus' legs weren't broken. Why? Because the lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. Matthew goes on to tell us that Jesus died at twilight. Why? Because the lamb was to be slain at twilight. So, so we come to the Lord's Supper this morning with the full story now that Abraham, who showed us there's a debt to be paid, that Moses showed us that there's a, a substitute that can pay for it, and Jesus comes along and he says, it's me. I'm the Lamb of God. Would you stand with me as we celebrate this?
So second element, we talked about the lamb. We talk about the bread. We'll read again from Matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And so uh, this meal would have been something that was uh, very familiar uh, to the disciples, uh, something that they had practiced uh, probably growing up. Uh, so, so Pastor Coyote kind of talked about this, but uh, Jesus is going off script. He's calling an audible. Uh, he's, he's, he's taking a right-hand turn when they expected him to take a left-hand turn. And, and the, the idea of the Passover, so even, even in today's Jewish celebrations of the Passover, they're going to call the bread the bread of affliction. Okay? And so Jesus is going off script by saying, I, the, the bread, I'm the bread, I'm the bread of life. That's off script, way left to what they would be familiar with. They would have called it the bread of affliction. So what is Jesus trying to say here? He's doing something different. Um, Pick it up in Isaiah 53. It says this, verses 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one whom men hid their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's the word afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, him being Christ, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. See the bread of affliction? Like to this day, the Jewish people would call it the bread of affliction. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take the affliction. I'm going to take the affliction. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So this picture of the Passover is incredibly powerful. And, and Pastor Kai's reference this, but, but it goes back to the Exodus. It goes back to when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. God raises up Moses to, to lead his people out of slavery after many prayers and pleadings on their part to be delivered. And he leads them into the wilderness and he feeds them with manna. And, and manna is described in the Old Testament as this sweet bread. Like we don't, we don't know what it was. Nobody knows how to make it. It was this supernatural bread that fell from heaven. Can you imagine can you imagine what that was like to wake up in the morning and this, this sweet bread that's beyond comprehension and taste is there waiting for you? But, but the manna was limited. He fed them supernaturally, not just to nourish them, but to encourage their spirits. Uh, it was supernatural food, but manna was food. It wasn't for healing. So where it would nourish the body, it couldn't heal the body. So if you had a physical ailment, if you, some, some type of infirmity, you could eat the manna and you'd still be sick. So the manna could nourish you, but it couldn't heal your body. It couldn't heal your soul. Christ's body is not only for food, but it's also medicine for the soul. Christ is a greater manna. Manna was perishable. God gave manna at the beginning of the day, 
and he gave them enough for the day for what they, what they would need. So, so if you're like some of my kids, like where they hoard their toys and don't share them, you could have hoarded all the manna you wanted and it would have been ruined for the next day. He gave them what they needed in the day. And then when they go into Canaan, when they finally enter into the promised land, you do not hear manna being talked about again in the sense of him feeding them with it. That manna was perishable. Christ's body will never cease. The bread of life, it sustains perfectly today forevermore. The bread of life will never cease. We have this terrible tendency, though, that we, like the children of Israel, we see affliction. He's the bread of affliction. He absorbs affliction according to Isaiah 53 that we just read. But we all here are afflicted. Anyone um, want to raise their hand to some affliction you're setting in? Right? You, you've been afflicted. You're setting in affliction even now. Sins you've committed have brought on affliction. Sins of others have brought on affliction. We live in a fallen world where suffering reigns. We are afflicted people, but what Isaiah 53 is saying, as he came, his body was broken, and he became affliction for us. That there is no affliction in this room that's outside of that affliction that he absorbed on our behalf. We also have this tendency to take God's supernatural provision, like the manna, and we want to hoard it. And we, we run to false saviors. We run to false saviors. So here's, here's why I'm saying this before we enter into the bread. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight through 29 says this, and this is a warning to everyone in the room. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, talking about what we're doing here. For in anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, that we do not enter into this flippantly. But we don't enter into it fearfully either. And so what, what's beautiful about the Passover is that they linger. So, you, you know, like Christmas time, your family comes over. Sometimes they linger too long. You want them to leave yesterday, right? They linger over the Passover. So what's beautiful about the picture of the Passover is they start out calling it, they call it the bread of affliction. But by the end of the Passover, they call it the bread of freedom. Because in reflecting on God's goodness to deliver them from freedom, deliver them from bondage. Now again, they're not looking to Christ for that freedom, but deliver them from that place of captivity. They call the same bread something far different, the bread of freedom. What we do here now, brothers and sisters, before we take of the bread and take of the cup, is we self-assess our own hearts, is what 1 Corinthians is saying. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray over us. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes, everybody in the room. And I'm going to give you some things to wrestle with that we might enter into this time somberly, soberly. So how do we examine ourselves rightly? Think of the affliction right now. Think of the affliction that you are enduring Regardless of where the affliction comes from, think of the affliction that you're under or that you've been under in your past. How do you respond in the face of affliction? Do you run towards Christ or away from him? Where have you found false saviors as a means of nourishment 
Confess those. Repent of them. Where have you harbored bitterness in your heart or unforgiveness in your heart? Confess it. Repent of it. Have you made your affliction greater than Jesus Christ? If Christ absorbs our affliction, there is no affliction that is greater than him. If you've believed that lie or lived in that lie, repent, confess, turn back to Christ. So Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to come to you, to confess our sins. And, and just as in the Passover, as they call it the bread of affliction, and then by the end of the Passover, they call it the bread of freedom, that as we reflect here on you, Jesus, we see our great need. We recognize that that need is there, whether we turn to you or not, and so we turn to you now, Jesus. You are the bread of life. You are our great sustainer. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your broken body. We thank you that all of our needs, all of our hope, all of our longings, all the life we need is found in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, um, as we now partake of the bread, I pray, God, that you would uh, move in our midst, that you would convict of sin, that you would bring a soberness to our hearts, especially as we look towards Easter, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. So have your way with us, Lord. We thank you for the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf, that we might have life in Jesus' name. Amen. Continues on here in Matthew 26, and the, the meal continues on after the bread. And verse 27 says, and he, he, talking about Jesus, took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, <clears throat> he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus talks about this cup that he then takes. Now that, that, that phrase, the cup, the cup's mentioned in another part. If you keep moving on in Matthew, look, look down at verse 36. After the, the supper together, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is talking about this, this cup What's he wrestling with here? He, he talks about a cup, the cup in scripture. There's this image of cup we read all through the Old Testament that represents God's justice and God's wrath poured out on sinful mankind. So we begin to see why Jesus doesn't face his death with the sort of courage that you would expect Jesus Christ, God the Son. I mean, others have been martyred and they, they seem to have more courage than Jesus did. Why? Because it wasn't the death that was causing Christ to be so filled with sorrow. There's something more than death going on here. There's the cup. 
There's the justice of God against sin and evil about to come down on Jesus. So Jesus, what does he do? He's always relied on the Father. And so he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes there, why? To call out to God the Father. But as he prays, he's overwhelmed with sorrow. Luke, in his account, adds more color to it, where he says not only was he just crying and overwhelmed with sorrow, but he sweat great drops of blood, which physicians say that only in a time of intense anxiety and stress would that ever happen. One commentator I was reading said that when Jesus began to, began to seek his father in the garden there, rather than, than him being, having heaven opened up to him, that he began to see the hell that was going to be his. As he called out to the Father, he began to feel the emptiness of God's presence being removed. And yet Jesus says in verse 39, not as I will, but you will. He says it again in verse 42, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And Jesus drank the cup of our judgment and it crushed him. We read everywhere else in scripture that God would say, hey, obey me and live. But to Jesus, it was obey me and die. Jesus, I will do the will of the Father and I'll die. I mean, in the Garden of Eden, it was Adam and Eve coming up to that tree and God says, obey me and you'll live. Now here in this garden, Jesus, the opposite happens. God the Father says, obey me and I'll nail you to that tree. So as the ushers come forward and begin to hand out the cup, as you hold on to that cup that you remember that in the garden, Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly, had perfect righteousness. And he got from God what we deserved. And as we hold this cup, we get from God what Jesus deserves. He, he drank the cup of judgment so we could have the cup of forgiveness, the cup of what he says in verse 28, the cup of the new covenant. I mean, think about that. Every other religion, every other way of doing life so that life is good for you, every other religion says this, do this, be committed to me and you'll get. Work hard and get this. And Jesus Christ says, your salvation isn't based on your commitment to me. It's based on my commitment to you. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. And you think about it, what were Jesus' disciples doing? The, the three that he called to himself, Peter and James and John, they were like the three best friends of his amongst the 12. And what were they doing while Jesus was agonizing over taking this cup of judgment? Verse 40, it says, and he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And he, he prays again. And then verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. 
A third time, Jesus comes and finds them asleep. Three times. Can you imagine Jesus looking at these guys saying, listen, I've never asked you to do anything for me, but here, right now, I'm asking you in the time of my greatest need, I don't want to be alone. Would you stay awake with me? And they fell asleep. At the time when these disciples should have been hugging Jesus, saying, I can't believe what you're doing for us. Thank you. I mean, this is too amazing for us even to think about. They're not doing that. What are they doing? They're sleeping. I mean, if I were Jesus and I, I came out and found them sleeping those three times, I think I would say, God, forget this. But Jesus fully drank the cup that we should have drank. And I think so often we struggle in life because we don't fully trust God. We're afraid that maybe God doesn't have our best interests in mind, that, that maybe God doesn't love us all that much. Maybe he won't actually take care of us. And so what do we do? We hold back from giving our lives to God. We grab a hold of other things. Saying, well, maybe this will give me hope. We don't fully surrender. But what do we see here? We see a love that all of hell was poured out on and it wasn't exhausted. Jesus' love didn't fail. So as you hold the cup, listen, you can trust his love. A love that always has your best interest in mind, a love that you can never wear out. And so then what do we do then with this? What do we do with the bread and the cup? What do we do? We partake. Jesus says, drink of it, eat of it. You, you can't just come to the table and sit there and expect to be nourished. No, no, you need to eat. You, you need to take the benefits of the cross to yourself, to pick it up, to see the good news, to embrace the gospel, the good news. We need to see this, that, that we're not the hero of this story at all. You and I were the broken, wicked sinners asleep while Jesus did this. And yet God said, you're asleep, but you're mine. I love you and I chose you. I mean, this changes everything. It, it changes our relationship so that we come to the table and we, we come to the table to meet Jesus. We're coming together to the table and we're coming with others. And maybe you're coming with somebody who fell asleep on you, hurt you deeply. And you come to the table though together, celebrating grace together, saying, but I'm the same. And I've been forgiven. So there's forgiveness at the table. It changes our, our hard times. And if you're suffering this morning, this changes even our suffering. Why is that? Because listen, listen, all the other, of all the other gods, of all the other religions, our God is the only God with scars. I mean, think about that, that, that God stands with you in suffering, that his love is still at work, that, that even in this suffering, although we may not understand it, God's at work in it. And we may not know why it's happening, but we do know this. We know God loves me. I don't need to doubt that. In fact, if you grabbed an Israelite in the middle of the wilderness, and you said, hey, what are you guys doing? They would say, we've been set free from slavery and bondage because of a lamb. 
And although it might not look like it now, as you see me here in the wilderness, but I'm on my way to a promised land. Listen, for, for those of us here who are followers of Christ, there's a day coming. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I mean, Jesus is coming again and he won't be riding in on a donkey. He'll be riding in on the clouds in complete victory, putting everything wrong right again. And so today we celebrate that. We drink together. And we look forward to that day when we will do this, when we will see Jesus face to face. Let's think about that. Reflect on that. So what do we do this morning as we go from here? What do we do this week as we prepare for Easter, as we're getting ready to come back together again next Sunday to celebrate a risen Savior? What do we do? Here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us this week to do what John the Baptist called us to do. Behold the Lamb of God. That this week we'd take time to behold the Lamb, that we'd take it in, that we'd think about it, that we'd realize it, that we'd grasp it. What's that look like? It means this week that, that you'd take time to think about the debt that's been paid. I mean, if you don't know Christ, that you would take this week to, to think about what does that mean that, that my sin could be forgiven, that my past, no matter how broken and bad it is, that it could be taken care of, that I could be made new. If you're a follower of Christ, that you would take this week and think about the fact that your sin has been forgiven. You won't know the great taste of, of this, this awesome wine of forgiveness if you don't fully understand the cup of judgment that was taken for you, what that, what that forgiveness cost you. So, so think about it. Think about the, the ultimate cry of Christ on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that Christ did that, felt that pain for you, for me that we take time this week to reflect on that, to behold the Lamb. Let this transform your relationships this week. I mean, to remember that Christ needed to die, not just for the Israelites, not just for the Egyptians, sorry, who are the, the oppressors, but Christ died for those who are being oppressed, that when you come to the cross, the ground is level at the cross. Christ died for those who were sleeping, when he needed the most. So this week, who's fallen asleep on you? Who, who do you need to show this love to? Who, who do you need to, to pay a debt, to forgive? To, who do you need to come to the table together with? Behold the lamb together. Behold the lamb together in your families. Behold the lamb together with your friends. Behold the lamb together in your small group. Let this sink in together and let's be transformed by this. Let's be transformed this week. Let, let it transform your hopes. Let it transform your desires. Let it transform your suffering. Let it transform your whole life as you behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that our bread of affliction becomes the bread of freedom, that our cup of judgment becomes the cup of forgiveness and new life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this week that you grow us even more, even deeper in, in our understanding, Lord Jesus, of why you came to die. 
that would behold you as the lamb and we would be transformed again, utterly new, that our attitudes towards other people, our attitudes towards herself, our attitudes towards tough times and good times, Lord God, that we would behold the lamb of God and we would be transformed. May we press in on this truth of new life. Press in on the truth of the gospel. Press in on the truth, Lord Jesus, of your life, your perfect life, your death, and your resurrection. And then even this week, we be transformed more and more into the image of you, Lord Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, as you go, um, little cards on your chair. Those are meant to be used as invite cards. You can invite friends and neighbors next week for Easter as we come and we celebrate the risen Christ together. Amen? And thank you, Harvest. You are loved. God bless.